I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, and Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at the results from the UK lenders, HSBC, RBS, and Lloyds, with HSBC on Monday lifting its dividend by as much as a half in the fourth quarter, while RBS and Lloyds moved arguably closer to reprivatisation. Finally, we'll discuss the fallout from the EU's plans to limit bank bonuses, something that poses a competitive threat to the continent's banks. First, though, HSBC see the numbers are out this morning jenny and quite fulsome disclosure we've got the annual report of the bank as well as the annual results so there's a lot to get through i think more than 500 pages of annual report but one of the interesting ways to look at this i suppose is through the filter of stuart gulliver's pay the chief executive's pay scorecard reveals i think it's eight different measures on which his pay is judged he's taking home a total remuneration package of about seven million pounds for 2012 judged on him meeting or not various targets what do you see as the most interesting aspect of that filter if you like well it's quite a neat way of looking at the progress the bank has made so far i mean clearly they're keen to highlight this morning the progressive dividend policy they've outlined in their strengthening of core capital and of course those are the two measures mr gulliver has scored full marks on measures he hasn't done so well include things like risk and compliance uh, cost efficiency and return on equity yeah, um, compliance is obviously the one that uh, clearly it would have been rather difficult (laughs) after a fine of nearly two billion exactly to square that anyway i mean he's going to be taking home around 52 percent of his total payout quite a neat way of saying well the bank has made some good progress in some areas and less so in some others and in fact whatever way you look at hsbc's results it's two different stories you've got china asia latin america the developing economies performing very well you've got the mature economies britain the the states primarily you Europe to some extent not doing so well. So HSBC's numbers tell two completely different stories and that's reflected in Mr Gulliver's pay. Daniel, one of the things that emerged from those results is that the Global Banking and Markets Division, the investment bank in other words, was the driver of growth. I think their revenues were up 10% year on year. How does I mean they're a very different investment bank from many mainstream groups partly because of their scope and their size and they're very much focused on HSBC's core emerging markets franchise. They're not necessarily doing a lot of the things that mainstream investment banks are doing. But how do they compare? I think they've done quite well compared to their competitors. I mean, their profits in the global banking markets have been up by a fifth in the past year to $8.5 billion, Mm. which is actually the same amount as the corporate bank brought in that year. So it's quite a good number. And they have profited from the fact that the markets that went well 
last year are actually the markets that they are strong in, i.e. particularly the credit and rates trading. So all the fixed income sides of the business went quite well. And also emerging markets and was doing quite well. Some parts of Asia, like Renminbi bonds, for instance, they had quite a strong year. So they profited from that because they are obviously a strong player in that in Hong Kong. So they showed a good performance, but it was also driven by the, those areas where yeah. they're actually strong. So they were lucky anyway. as well as uh, yes. efficient. One final thing to mention on HSBC is that they, as as Jenny mentioned, they are missing some of their core areas. And therefore, Stuart Gulliver missed out on his bonus in a few core areas, notably things that shareholders care about, cost-income ratio, where they're way ahead of where they should be partly because of those costs of meeting the money laundering scandal payout bill. But that's going to be something that everyone's going to be watching very closely going forward. And in May, Mr. Gulliver's due to come out with their next strategy review, which will set the next three years targets. Second topic for the day is to look at the UK part state-owned banks. They reported their numbers last week, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Jenny, both were making noises directly or indirectly around the approaching prospect of reprivatisation. Yes, it's sort of a slightly different change in tone from Stephen Hester indicating that a lot of the heavy lifting the bank has done over the last few years. He took the helm in late 2008, has now been completed and that 2013 will be the last year of, of really heavy lifting. The bank has several you know, loopholes it's got to go through before the government can start to sell down its stake. But you know, it looks like that's closer than ever before. And we should say that this sounds slightly odd for to the outside observer, given that they made five billion of losses last year. To talk about becoming an attractive investment prospect is slightly weird, perhaps. But RBS is nonetheless as Stephen Hester said, maybe in its last year of major restructuring work. Yeah, exactly. It's obviously, you know, a bank that still has a long way to go. But the most critical question around RBS at the moment is when the government can realistically start to sell down part of its 82% stake. And it's exactly the same case at Lloyd's, where, you know, a far smaller stake around 39%. But again, that question starting to come up. And, you know, it's not just the rally in the bank share price and the fact they're sort of three, four years uh, into their restructuring programmes, respectively. It's also the fact that a general election is expected to be called in 20 2015. And of course, it would be politically expedient for the government to start to divest those stakes, sort of to draw a line between the financial crisis and the present. In that direction, they seem to be doing some quite interesting preparatory work, preparing the ground ready for that. A new figure emerged for the price at which Lloyd's shares are held in the government's books, right? This 61 pence number. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty low number considering where the bank share price is now. Of course, the significance of this is the government bought its stake. There is a range. It's understood now to be between 61 and around 74 pence. The shares are, this is at Lloyd's, the shares are hovering at around the mid 50s now. So of course, setting the floor so low, it wasn't explicitly stated. This was part of a bonus condition for uh, the chief executive. But nevertheless, making that kind of link could be taken as an indication the way the government might be thinking on this. Now, of course, the Treasury officially has said it's supportive of Lloyd's, but it made it very clear it still has a long way to go. Yes. Behind the scenes, we understand that, of course, officials are looking at a range of options. But it does seem that, you know, with that number and with the kind of the language the chief executives of both banks are prepared to use, the reprivatization question is something that's gone from, you know, a distant theoretical possibility to something that could ha- well happen or begin to happen in the next two years. The final topic for the day is the EU bonus cap. This is the 
pretty controversial idea that's come out of Europe. It's been in the works for quite some time, basically an idea that came out of the European Parliament. It's, it's passed a key threshold at the European Commission last week. And Daniel, you've been watching very closely what the details are. It's the one-to-one cap or, or one-to-one ratio being capped or bonuses to salary. That's still what's on the agenda? Yes, in a way it is. It's still a one-to-one cap, but... There has been one notable, very important compromise agreed even before last week on it, which is saying that if shareholders approve it, then you can lift the cap to one to two. Right, so um, you could get two million of bonus for every one million of salary. Yes, and there's also another smaller concession that if you defer parts of your bonus by at least five years, then you basically get a discount on the cap. Some pay experts reckon it could mean that you can lift the, the cap to one to two point seven or one one even one to three in some cases. And that is that's interesting. The five year deferral period is obviously normally the deferral period at the moment is three years or up to three years. The five year deferral period is definitely something that's been talked about and been introduced at some banks, hasn't it? Yes it has. Some banks like Deutsche Bank for instance late last year came out with a plan and and they've already adopted it to give their 150 highest executives five-year deferral. So basically, the whole bonus for them is deferred. The deferred part of it is deferred by five years. So it all cliff vests after five years. They don't get anything from the deferred part before that. Right. And it's a trend we're seeing at other banks as well. They are looking at it. The main problem with the cap is, although there were some concessions, one, a one to two cap, even with the discount of some of the deferrals, is going to be a, a major problem. For particularly for the European banks because for because them... Because it applies globally, right, yes, for them? Yes, that's the main thing that they are very worried about is that it would be a major competitive disadvantage for them because... Whereas they, for non-European banks, it only applies yeah, in Europe. Yeah, the, so yeah. the European banks would have to pay their staff in New York. They would have to apply the same cap there, whereas a US bank would just need to apply it in Europe. So that would obviously... In the market in the US, for instance, which is very competitive in terms of hiring talent, where there's a lot of competition from funds and other sort of shadow banking players for talent as well, it would be a major problem for some of the big European banks to retain talent there. That seems to be the focus for policymakers here now, George Osborne, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer seems to be focused on that issue, the global relevance of the cap for European players or for UK players as the thing that they're going to lobby on. Yes, they seem to be particularly worried about HSBC and Standard Chartered because in the past there have been discussions about moving their headquarters outside of the UK. Particularly Standard Chartered is sort of vulnerable to this because they have the vast majority of their business in Asia. And actually, while they're headquartered here in London, they don't really have much operations in London. So for them, it would be fairly easy. There's no obvious reason why they would need to be based in London in the future. So that's a big worry. Jenny? Stuart Gulliver was asked about this question and what it would mean for HSBC this morning. And he said the bank was still formulating its response. He doesn't think it will affect them a great deal in the sense that they have relatively smaller operations in Europe. And of course, you know, London will remain a very important global financial centre. But he did say that the bank would, their shareholders would expect them to remain competitive. And that'll be the bottom line, won't it? I'm hearing from insiders within the bank also that actually one has to keep in mind that it's only a few hundred people, if even within the bank, that will be hit by this. And they're looking to find, obviously, 
every bank is going to look to find see to find other solutions like increasing base salaries etc to to retain them as one insider put it we're not going to re-engineer the whole bank because of this so particularly maybe less so with standard charters but with hsbc nobody really expect them to go for a dramatic move because of that and to dramatically change their structure or even move headquarters well we'll see what concessions get made from policymakers and what ruses banks come up with over the next few months i'm sure as it passes through the european legal process that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank jennifer and daniel for their contributions and thank you for listening remember you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking banking weekly was produced by connor sullivan until next week goodbye for more downloads go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.